Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie, and today I'm joined by Sam Jamal, Democratic candidate for California's 39th Congressional District. Sam, who grew up in the communities of the 39th, is the son of working-class immigrant parents from South America and the Middle East. He was a civil rights attorney for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, served as legislative counsel in the United States Senate, was an Obama appointee to the Department of Commerce, served as chief of staff in the United States House of Representatives, and was a clean energy business executive for SolarCity and Tesla. Sam currently lives in the 39th in Fullerton and works in business development for Rapid SOS, an advanced technology startup focused on upgrading 911 technology. Thanks for coming on today, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to join you. Really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Yeah, me too. You have a very extensive and impressive resume. Could you tell us a little more about your background and how exactly it brought you to where you are today? Uh, yes, uh, thank you. So, um, as you mentioned, I grew up in the 39th District. Uh, my parents immigrated to the community in the 70s, and this is where they started a family. I'm the youngest of three siblings. Their immigrant stories look very similar to a lot of other folks in the community's immigrant story. My dad came here with literally nothing in his wallet, roughly $700. He was pumping gas at a gas station the same day he came. You know, he wasn't able to finish college because he had to choose between fixing his car or paying for classes. And he uh, spent his career working in jack-in-the-box and fast food. And my mom also wasn't able to finish college because she had to help provide for her family, my grandma and her siblings. She worked a bunch of teacher's assistant jobs throughout the community and so I grew up in a very working class household, but it really is the embodiment of what this country is about, where you can work hard and lay down roots. And still back in the day, you used to be able to buy a home. Through that, your kids can take out the student loans and have a part-time job that will help the next generation get ahead. My entire career has been focused on giving back and making sure that what this country did for my family is available for other folks, whether that's, you know, being able to lay down roots and uh, still afford that American dream, or just the civil rights conversation, making sure people have a seat at the table. And kind of going at your question, why I initially got involved was as a young Arab American, I still remember walking to class on September 11th and the fear, concern, and anxiety that we all had. On my end also, I remember walking to my political science 101 class and hearing some of the words of, they were coming from a place of fear, but just the concerns and not necessarily welcoming sentiment that was said towards Arab Americans. In those weeks after, let me do some soul searching because I felt like an outsider. Having grown up here in a biracial household, and you know, I believe I'm an American first and foremost, and want to try and give back to make sure that others don't feel like an outsider. We have what historically has happened in the U.S. where you bring voices to the table through civil rights and politics. And so that's why I got my career working in civil rights at the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund was that desire to make sure that everyone has a seat at that table. And then what that led me to was, well, first it led me to go into law school and to go work at MALDEF. And then from there, it led me to really engage in the political process, whether it's working on President Obama's first campaign or working in the United States Senate as a council or uh, serving in President Obama's administration the Commerce Department. And my last role in government was as the Chief of Staff and House Representatives, which for me carried a little bit more symbolic importance because... At the time, I was the only Arab American chief of staff and one of six Latino chiefs of staff in the entire Congress. And so being able to have a voice that, you know, allows for that storytelling that all of our stories are so similar. It's just sometimes we use these different things to divide us. And so that's kind of how I initially got my start in politics was, you know, wanting to serve and make sure we had a voice and in particular, making sure we're preserving not just 
the who we are as America, where everyone's welcome, but also the basics of the American dream, because I do think this is a country where really anything's possible. We just have to fight to preserve that ladder. Can you tell us about your work as a civil rights lawyer at MALDEF? Sadly, I look at that period of time, this is in roughly 2007 to 2009, as the good old days of immigration reform, where we had a Republican president who was actually trying to pass comprehensive immigration reform and was trying to address these issues. While I had a lot of disagreements with the Bush administration, there was an attempt to fix immigration reform. I got to MALDEF kind of in the aftermath of that, where there was a lot of anxieties and frustrations. And so a lot of my work at MALDEF was less on focusing on a comprehensive immigration reform bill and more focused on some of those aftermath issues of, well, we don't have a bill yet, but what are we going to do to integrate the immigrants that are here? You know, what are we going to do in terms of language access and education? And what do we do to make sure we're preserving core civil rights while at the same time, you know, having more of a proactive agenda? And so what started my work at MALDEF was focusing on immigrant integration because I spent a lot of time fighting English-only policies that some Republicans in Congress were pushing. And from there, I decided, well, we can't just continue to just fight these guys. And yes, we win by getting the bill not passed, but it's not helping us in the long game, which is about making sure folks are acquiring language and you know, getting that uh, needed education to help them get ahead. And so what I did was I worked with then-Senator Clinton's office to bring that same Republican Senator, Laura Alexander, that we used to fight, to put together a bipartisan bill on immigrant integration. And a lot of that was rooted on finding different ways that we can educate and reach people, whether it was through their place of business, the local community college, their kids' school, or their place of worship, trying to find different ways to help bring into that language access conversation. And so that was a core of my work at MALDEF. What quickly happened, though, was the Great Recession. And so I was at MALDEF when Congress was considering bailing out Wall Street. We were trying to advocate for homeowners to not get left behind. And I was at MALDEF when President Obama was going through his uh, transition team to build up what was then going to be the stimulus bill for the recovery. And making sure that we had provisions in there that were going to provide job training for workers who were trying to recover from lost jobs in the economy, but also just trying to get ahead and making sure that investment was there. And so I was at MALDEF for an interesting time because you first had the aftermath of comprehensive immigration reform failing under President Bush. And then you had these issues of almost in a sense cultural flashpoints, like English only stuff. But then we quickly moved into the, the to the recession and just that urgency of response. And so it was an interesting time because I was fresh out of law school, 22 years old at the time. And I was finding myself meeting with the presidential transition team of the United States senators to try and find some solutions. Expanding on immigration, a top priority is passing some iteration of the DREAM Act so that DACA recipients in particular have a pathway to citizenship. However, even the DREAM Act wouldn't address all undocumented Americans, only the select few deemed worthy by our politicians. How do you hope to help undocumented Americans, including those who do not necessarily have a perfect record and would not qualify for DACA or DAPA? You've got to look at comprehensive immigration reform and make sure that Whatever steps are taken in the moment of urgency around the DACA kids, we don't lose sight of we need a comprehensive fix because that's how you're going to take care of their parents. That's how you're going to take care of their cousins. That's how you're also going to take care of our economy because, you know, the immigrant workforce is such a vital part of our economy. You know, 75% of agricultural workers are undocumented. So anytime you go to the grocery store or go to a restaurant, any food you eat, it's picked by undocumented labor. And we need to be telling that story. Because if we went with this 
far right wing approach of Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions, you'd completely destabilize the economy because basic groceries would go up and a lot of different things that affect our cost of living would go up because you lose that workforce. DACA and DAPA approach of President Obama was a band-aid on a broken Congress. Because it was a band-aid, now that Trump's trying to tear it off, we have to make sure that in that band-aid process, we're not really hurting these kids because all their information is before the government. You know, I was on the Senate floor when we considered the DREAM Act in 2010. Uh, that same day, we also re were able to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But I remember sitting on that floor and advising then-Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado on how to vote. You know, he supported it. But, you know, you saw all the young people in the gallery in their cap and gown and you know, they had been lobbied on the Hill and advocating for passing the DREAM Act. The House of Representatives had actually passed their version of it, but we couldn't get the job done in the Senate. We were just a couple votes short. And to me, that was one of the most depressing moments I had in politics. I have to look those youth in the eye and say, we didn't get the job done. All that hard work. But to their credit, they didn't take no for an answer. And, you know, President Obama had said he wasn't going to do anything like DACA or DAPA. They, and the Congress had failed, and they kept pushing the president. They kept pushing and pushing and pushing, but we were finally able to get DACA and DAPA pushed through, and that was only because of that resilience and push. Now, in this situation with Donald Trump, we can't leave them behind. They can, neither the dreamers can give up, nor the other undocumented youth, but more so the rest of us. We owe it to them because they were a model of not giving up and continuing to fight. And so it's on us now to take care of them because they put that work in, they put that effort in, and we owe it to them to do the right thing. You accurately describe Congress as broken, and you worked in Washington during a time that really exemplified just how broken it is. What was it like witnessing these inner workings in person, and what problems exactly did you observe? I actually left my role as chief of staff largely disappointed and somewhat disgusted in that I think the place doesn't represent the rest of us anymore. I, I was just reading the other day on the tax reform bill, 6,000 lobbyists in Washington have their fingerprints on that bill. That's not surprising. And that's not to blame those folks who are advocating on behalf of their companies who have shareholders to report to. But the problem is there's no one lobbying for the rest of us. There's no one lobbying for folks with student debt. A good example of this is the Perkins Student Loan Program which I took advantage of when I was in college. It's not the largest student loan program, but it's one of the many that are out there, actually expired on September 30th. Now, if you do a quick Google search, no one has said a peep about that expiration of that program, which is troubling that we could have a student loan program disappear and no one says a peep. And that's largely because what I experienced up there is Washington's the playground of the rich. It's a playground of the folks with the most money, whether it's the elected officials themselves or unfortunately a lot of the staffers. When I was working in the Senate, I remember I was one of a handful of folks to have to participate in the loan repayment assistance program the Senate offered. You know, my background's working class. My dad worked at Jack in the Box. I'd take out a lot of student loans. And when I went to law school, I could have gone the big law firm route, but I decided to get into public interest work and work in civil rights. So for me, it was a big personal risk to go work in Congress. And what I saw was I talked to my friends at home that were struggling to get a job or defaulting on loans or defaulting on some of their investments. This was in 2009, 2010, and early 2011, the heart of the recession. What I saw was Congress declared victory on the recession, while the rest of us had it, and we're still trying to figure that out. And that was largely a product of Washington's a wealthy city, and a lot of the things that were affecting everyone else weren't affecting folks there. 
And so when I left the Senate, I decided to go work and serve in administration because I thought, well, maybe we can do it here in the agency process. And I think we did. We did a lot of good things there, but I was on my way out of D.C. and had a chance to be a chief of staff. And at the time as a chief of staff, I was 30 years old, so I was one of the youngest chiefs of staff in U.S. history. And what I saw as a chief was literally nothing changed in my time in the Senate, except it was worse because when I was working in the Senate, for the most part, we were in the majority. And so while we were able to not get everything we done wanted, like the Dream Act, we were able to get some good stuff done. But when I was working in the House, we basically were having to stop everything and consistently vote no. But we had the benefit also of President Obama's red pen to veto anything we could put together that was too bad for families. But what I saw there, though, was literally just the singular focus on satisfying whatever special interests had a voice in Washington and satisfying just how are we going to take care of some of the most wealthy folks without any sort of thought of the consequences on what does this mean for everyone else? And, you know, what we've seen, the fruition of that is home ownership rate for millennials is at the lowest rate since before World War II. Student debt is a crisis that's dragging our economy down. And you have an entire generation that's still bouncing from different opportunities without some of the more economic stability that's traditionally hit folks as they kind of mature and grow up, which is partly the reason why our economy is still a drag. How would you hope to address these issues as a member of the House of Representatives? Well, I think first and foremost, on day one, I'll know how the place works and know how to do the job. And so it won't be a situation where I spend my first few years just trying to find the bathroom. I'll actually know how it works and know the legislative process, uh, which doesn't happen so much up there. Uh, but more so, because of my background and my roots, and because I've experienced a lot of this myself, I still have student debt. I'll be able to go up there and raise the profile on these issues in a way that's not just saying it to tick it off because we want to make sure that young people vote, but to say in a way that's actually real and normal and focuses on like, you know, young people have kitchen tables too. That 27 or 28 year old still looking to, you know, save for the future and start a family and build a home and pay off their bills, a credit card bill, student debt, or that 22 year old. And sometimes we forget about that and just focus on younger voters in terms of some of the big picture items, which are important. Climate change, reproductive rights, civil rights are critical issues we have to fight for. But there's also the basic pocketbook issues that I think both parties often neglect when it comes to younger voters. And so I'll actually be able to be an advocate on that. And the thing with what I saw with politics, and this goes back to what the dreamers did, if you don't take no for an answer and keep pushing, you will succeed. It may take a while and it may be hard, but the thing is whoever pushes the hardest normally succeeds. And that's where actually the imbalance in politics is today because some of the biggest special interests and millionaires have a lot of folks advocating and pushing on their behalf while the rest of us don't have that capacity to consistently push and stay on the radar. And so we need folks up there who get that experience and can advocate on a day-to-day basis. What policies are you advocating for to help millennials with the issues you just spoke of? So I think first and foremost, we got to make sure we're building and creating a good economy with good jobs. And I think that starts with, for me, from my experience working at Solar City and Tesla, is making sure we're building the clean energy economy because that's going to create a lot of jobs for millennials, whether it's the jobs of the installers or whether it's the jobs of the salespeople or people being able to start their own clean energy company. We don't have enough folks talking about that economic transition. More so, you look at things like coding. It's going to be a vital skill set 
moving forward in our economy, the ability to cope, the ability to work with the internet. And we're not teaching that in a lot of schools and we're not allowing folks to go back and learn those skill sets. And so for me, I'd also be advocating to make sure the next generation really is getting the job training for the jobs of the future, as well as making sure that we can keep those jobs in the future here. But more so, you know, on the student debt issue, I think we really do have to look at our tax code. And it's kind of ironic. The Republicans are going through tax reform right now. It's getting rid of the student loan deduction. I think we should actually be doing tax reform, but in a way that actually benefits young people and benefits middle-class families. And so I would actually look at not getting rid of the student loan deduction, but actually broadening it out. Because what you don't want is someone makes a sacrifice to get ahead and get an education. And then the payment of that, the repayment of that is now years years later where you know learning should be lifelong student debt shouldn't be and that should be a guiding principle of what we're paying for education so i would look at figuring out ways in the tax in the tax code to make sure that people are getting you know millennials in particular aren't being penalized but more so i'd also look at you know making sure Pell grants are funded uh, but also looking to find different ways to make sure college is actually more affordable when i was in law school i was doing a lot of student loan advocacy and I remember one stat that was baffling to me that between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s, when I was third year of law school, the cost of law school went up 200%. There is nothing in America that's gone up 200% except for the cost of higher education. And that's a problem. And that's because no one's mining the fences and making sure that how much are we paying here? How much are we charging? And so... You know, some of it would be advocacy just on that and at the basics. And then, you know, lastly, there's a whole host of other issues that we have to look at to make sure they're affordable. So if you're a young millennial family, the cost of child care is through the roof. That's going to hurt your ability to start to lay those roots. Separately, a lot of us are in the gig economy now. We need to make sure that different benefits that we normally would have, like paying unemployment insurance, as well as into healthcare, are portable so you can go from job to job and you don't lose out. Uh, and then just on the last point of healthcare, I support Medicare for all because I think we need to basically take that healthcare cost out of the equation so we can actually build a future and start a company and start that next new great app or program without having to worry about how am I going to get by if I get sick. How do you think we actually get to Medicare for all? First, we have to win back the House representatives to make sure the current healthcare system isn't destroyed by these guys. Um, second, it's not going to happen under Donald Trump. The reality is we have to look past 2020. But from there, we're, we're going to have no choice but to rethink our healthcare system. The reality is, and I saw this when I was working in clean energy and working in tech and my current job, I see it as well. Automation is going to transform how our economy operates. Artificial intelligence is going to transform that. And so for a lot of American workers, this doesn't necessarily pertain to millennials, but more of the folks 50 to 65, that they're before the Medicare age, but they're old enough where if their job goes away, it's going to be harder to get a new job. So those folks are most in danger of automation, artificial intelligence taking their job. And so you're going to have to look at creating some sort of, at minimum, a Medicare buy-in or lowering the age of Medicare so at least that 50-year-old whose job has now been automated has the opportunity to go and learn a new job or start his or her own business, but not have to worry about high health care costs being prohibitive and having to take a job that doesn't necessarily fulfill their skill sets because they have to look out for just having basic health care. 
And so I think we're going to have to do that because of where the economy is going. There's going to have to be some sort of dropping that age or creating a buy-in for Medicare. And then from there, uh, you know, we have to look at things like creating a public option in the healthcare marketplace or, again, allowing the Medicare buy-in for young folks who are going on the exchange. Because the challenge that we're having right now is in some markets, there's only one insurance option. So they can charge you an arm and a leg just for basic health care costs. And so the only solution there is going to have to have some sort of public option. Uh, but ideally, what we're looking at when we start to have the conversation about those older folks that we have to get Medicare to reach them, that we just look holistically and take a step back and realize we're spending almost 20% of our gross domestic product on health care. The rest of the world is spending anywhere between 7 to 10%. That's a problem in a global economy where we're trying to be effective. And so something like Medicare is actually more efficient economically and would save us money in the long run if we just transition to that system. And if we're going to have to do it to those folks affected by automation, well, let's open the door for the bigger conversation on let's just transform our system. And so for me, that's how I look at the direction we need to go because Medicare works. And we need to focus on investing in what works. And coming from my business background, when you're working in the startup space and clean energy, you have no choice but to invest in what works because you can't afford to make a mistake. And so when it comes to healthcare, we have to take that business mindset in of what works in the healthcare system. Medicare does. And so let's invest in it. That's why from day one in Congress, I'll be advocating for Medicare for all. And then there's going to be several steps in the process to get it there. But we need to be having this conversation of what actually makes sense from America from a business standpoint. Now, in 2008, you served as the chair of the Democratic National Committee's Latino Voter Protection Task Force. I'm interested in getting your thoughts on the Democratic Party's weak 2016 outreach to Latinx voters. In 2014, Hispanic Engagement Director at the Democratic National Committee, Albert Morales, requested $3 million for Latinx outreach, yet he only received 300,000, which all went to radio ads. The Democratic Party autopsy found that Hillary Clinton's campaign was months behind Barack Obama's when it came to Spanish language outreach and generally did a poor job of reaching out to voters of color. What's your take on all of this? I worked on the Obama campaign and saw what it, what it took to turn out Latino voters and young people, as well as just generally communities of color. My significant other was working in Nevada where the Clinton campaign this past election actually did it right, where Latino turnout was high and really came out in high numbers. Across the country, though, that wasn't necessarily the case. And, you know, the thing with Latino voters in particular, I think this applies to millennials as well, you've got to have more conversation with them than just a one-stop, hey, the election's in two weeks, come and turn out to vote. you got to have multiple conversations if you're trying to bring folks on board and to buy into the system. But more so, what I believe we didn't do with Latino voters was talk about the broader vision, the broader issues. Instead, we, you know, and I'm a civil rights lawyer who focused on immigration to start his career. We weren't talking about things beyond just immigration. And so we were going to Latino voters and pointing out Trump's bad on immigration. He wants to build a wall. Yes, that's true. And for some folks, they're going to turn out on that. But for a lot of folks, they're worried if they can achieve the American dream still. Can they afford their rent for their apartment? Can their kids still get a good school? How's public safety in their community? And Traditionally, on the Obama campaign, what we did was Obama was about painting a picture of a welcoming America that brought us all together and everyone would be lifted up. And so we were talking about the issues Republicans were dividing us on, like immigration. But we were also talking about just those basic fundamentals of, are we making sure folks can get ahead in this difficult economic time? 
And, you know, I, I think what lacked this past election across the board for Democrats, but it affects Latinos in particular, a lack of focus on kitchen table issues that affect families on a daily basis. We made it more about just big picture items, pretty much all about Donald Trump for the most part, and not about how does this affect me. And, you know, the act of voting really does come down to that personal decision of I'm going to step up and invest in this person to govern because it's going to make my life better. And so we didn't do that conversation with Latinos. And so, you know, there's just the basic conversation piece. But the other part of it, we weren't also investing in having organizers in those communities. What we also saw in the Obama campaign was if you hire folks going door to door and you hire folks on the ground, you're going to get a better result in communities of color. For whatever reason, that wasn't an investment on the part of the Clinton campaign. It was more of a very top-down and let's find some different gadgets to get a hold of folks. Instead of the old-fashioned way, you actually go to someone's door and have a neighbor-to-neighbor conversation. And so what's going to differentiate my campaign for Latino vote in particular is, one, we're going to be out in the field and talking to folks face-to-face um, because I believe the best way to reach a voter is by actually going to them and having that conversation and not just being distant with a TV ad or mail. You got to do that stuff, but you also got to get people doorways. And two, we're actually going to talk not just about the flashpoint issues of like immigration, for instance, or Donald Trump and everything he's doing, but also talk about what's affecting people at the kitchen tables and in their living rooms, making sure that the American dream can still be preserved because that's how you give people hope. And people like to vote for Democrats win when people are hopeful. Republicans win when people are cynical. And so we have to give people hope, and the way you give people hope is by having conversations about building up that future for them. You know, you got to have a contrast and give people something to do for, not just run entire campaigns against. And that's what we failed to do in 2016. You recently issued a really thoughtful statement on the crisis of sexual abuse in Congress. Could you tell us about what you think should be done? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost. You shouldn't be able to settle deals on harassment in secret. Any publicly traded company in America has to report these types of settlements. The fact that Congress can settle these in secret is completely unacceptable and should be offensive to every taxpayer. Like, on every level of imaginable, that should be offensive and not be a practice in Congress. So that's number one. I think number two, what was shocking to me when I was working as a chief of staff in particular in Congress was, There are literally no rules of the road for these offices. Every other company has like basic best practices that you go through and basic things that will help give you counsel if there's an issue. So Congress has an office that will help people after the issue happens, but there aren't really like guidelines in place that everyone should be governed by. And they leave it up to individual offices to create their policies for harassment, to create their policies on leave and create their general employment policies. That's not acceptable. I mean, we have years and decades of experience of what best practices are, and they should be uniform. They, the fact, the fact is, we should have training, and we should, that's the only way you're going to have help address some of the cultural issues. But also, I think in this moment, the fact that so many young women have stepped up and raised their voices in the Me Too move, movement really is inspiring because that's how you're going to change culture, and that's how you're going to change behavior. And so, what we need to do is help empower those those voices. And also to make sure people who have been victims of assault or harassment have a forum that they also feel empowered because what happens in these environments sometimes is uh, it's a lot of risk for the victim to step up. And, you know, Congress is a place where it's really about going along and get along. And so if someone's been harassed or assaulted, 
that can be a challenging thing to raise their voice because their career can be jeopardized. And we need to make sure there are checks in place that people know that if I'm engaging in bad behavior and I'm doing this in the workplace and I'm using taxpayer dollars, I'm going to be held publicly accountable. And so, you know, what was most disturbing to me, why I put that statement out was just seeing more and more reports of this stuff and the reality of none of this is public record. I didn't even know this wasn't public record, but I was a chief of staff. It never would have crossed my mind that you can hide harassment settlements within your budget. It's just baffling, amazing, and, you know, to a large part, kind of disgusting. And so, you know, I think what we have to do is have folks have like a conversation that first and foremost is unacceptable and let's make sure we have rules of the road to be able to govern. What advice would you give to millennials hoping to run for office? My number one advice would be just do it. Run. Our generation needs to be running for positions, whether it's Congress, whether it's school board, whether it's city council, whether it's local commissioner, whatever it is, our generation needs to be at the table. The fact that we're not at the table is why we're having policies like tax reform, which is going to bankrupt our generation. The fact that we're not at the table right now in these positions is why we have a student debt crisis. The fact that home ownership's the lowest since before World War II for our generation is because we're not at the table having conversations. And so if you're thinking about running, do it. Uh, you know, it's hard to run. I can give you stories about how challenging it's been to get this off the ground. And, you know, for me, it's even more challenging in that I'm a young person. I don't come from money. So what I have to bank on is just talking to a lot of folks and having them chip in what they can. And so what I would say is it's worth the risk because at the end of the day, you're adding our voice to the process. And if our voice is in the process, we're going to get better results. Lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign? Well, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, my website is sam, the number four, congress.com. Uh, I'm at Twitter at, at Sam, S-A-M-J-A-M-M-A-L. And my Facebook group is Sam Jamal for Congress. And the best way to do it is to sign up online and join our campaign, whether it's a volunteer or be able to chip in five or ten bucks. We're building a movement. I have, o- I have over 1,500 donors to my campaign today. And we're getting in all different chunks and we're building it the old fashioned way. And so if folks can chip in instead of getting a cup of coffee at Starbucks, help build out the campaign here, it makes a big difference. If folks want to get some of that sweat equity, we're already knocking on doors. We had 15 college students um, canvas for us in Chino Hills in the district this past weekend. We're the first campaign to actually have a grassroots canvas this cycle in our district. And we're going to keep doing that. We're going to be knocking on doors after January 1. And we're going to do that by just having these conversations neighbor to neighbor about what's going on in Washington and how we're trying to fix it. Um, and then more so, if, you know, we'll have remote options too. If people, you know, can commit to making a handful of calls to folks in the district and explaining why the election is important, it's going to be critical. You know, millennial vote, voter turnout is always low in off-year elections. And that's functionally what Republicans are banking on. They're banking on our generation not turning out. We have to turn out and we have to do everything we can. And the way to do that is by hopping on social media and highlighting candidates and reminding people about the issues, as well as volunteering on campaigns and doing the hard work of talking to donors, talking to voters and saying, like, you know, give this a shot. Let's take control of the situation. And in my district in particular, the average age is 39. So it's a young district. We have several college campuses in the district, Cal State Fullerton being the biggest. We have a lot of millennial voters here that can swing this election. And so folks can sign up at sam, the number four, congress.com. 
love to have them join our team and let's make a difference and let's show that our generation is ready to lead. Great. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for the time and thank you for doing this and look forward to staying in touch. Again, my website, Sam, the number four, congress.com. Let's work together to change the world. Again, this is Sam Jamal, Democratic candidate for California's 39th Congressional District, and I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media and subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. We are self-funded and every purchase goes directly to keeping the lights on and expanding our organization. Lastly, stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.